Sketches from Scripture Presents. Wandering, Wisdom from the Wilderness, a teaching series from the stories of the Torah. Wandering is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be continuing our exploration of the narrative structure and style of the books of the Torah, focusing primarily on the book of Numbers. This study will give us context for a better understanding of Scripture. It will help us trust more in these Scriptures by demystifying them. Taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events and real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast reminds you that even in times of wilderness wandering, the Creator of heaven and earth is with you. If you enjoy this podcast, Please share it with others. My big hope is that when you go back and read the Torah now, Genesis through Deuteronomy, it won't read to you like a fairy tale or, you know, like a, like reading Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or something that it won't read like, um, uh, uh, like a religious text or something like that, but you'll see it and you'll see the stories and you'll understand, oh, these are real people. And you have a better sense of the context and, and things that are going on. Um, cause I think we, we feel so distant of it because there's this haze of translation between the ancient Hebrew and modern English. And when you kind of are able to kind of demystify and kind of literally get rid of that mist and um, shine some light down in there in the abyss and say, oh, yeah, this is uh, it's just about people. And people really aren't any different now than they were so many years ago. Um, so, yeah. So this is the penultimate lesson of the Wandering series. We've got one more lesson tomorrow night, and then that'll be the official end of the wandering series. That's two whole series that we've done now. One just on Genesis and this wandering series is really concentrated on numbers, but has gone from Exodus. And then tomorrow night, we'll look at a selection from Deuteronomy. We'll be wrapping up numbers tonight. And we've been through the whole Torah in what, like three weeks, something like that, four weeks. And um, so that would be a challenge that I would give you then is unless you've got a daily Bible reading plan that you're doing already, that might be fun for you to go back and start with Genesis 1-1 and read through it with all the things that we've talked about story-wise and all the things that we've learned about the the culture and the time and the people and ways to kind of decipher what we're reading and why all these genealogies are here and why are all these laws where they are and what do these offerings mean, some of these things. Uh, to go back and read it and just read it like a story and just read it you know, many chapters at a time. So I think I told you mom got that uh, read the Bible in 90 days book for us at one point. And, you know, it was about an hour of reading every day to read the whole Bible in 90 days. And it's just one of the best things I've ever done. Uh, it'd be tough to do it again. Um, but uh, honestly, right now, it wouldn't be that tough. Now, now might be the perfect time to do something like that. Um, and it was about 10 chapters a day. I think I remember day one was Genesis 1 through 10. And so uh, if you can read somewhere between, you know, eight and 12 chapters a day, you know, take you a a little chunk of time, but you'll be reading it like a story. You'll be getting through it. You'll be, I promise you, if you do that continually day after day, 
by the time you get into like chronicles and all that stuff, you're like, oh yeah, I remember this. I know who these people are. I understand what's happening now. I see, you know, it's just, if, if you spread it out over the year, sometimes it's a few months by the time you get to Kings or whatever. And you're like, I don't know who these people are. I don't know what they're fighting over. I thought Israel and Judah were the same thing. What is this? You know? And uh, if you read it like a book, if you read it like a story, it's amazing how you just retain all that stuff because it was just, you know, a few days ago that you read it all. So that's a recommendation. You can uh, do with that what you will. So we're going to look tonight at um, just uh, a couple of things. So this wandering series, we're looking at will wisdom in the wilderness, this idea of when you're out there wandering around, it wears God. And um, when you're going through some kind of suffering or turmoil or trial, uh, which we're, you know, we're all as a planet going through that right now. Where's God and and how do you trust him and, and what is he providing? And turns out God is actually physically with you, you know, that whole time. That was the beauty of the, the book of Numbers is that God was geographically, physically with them, visibly with them. And uh, the book of Numbers in Hebrew is called in the wilderness because that's the first Hebrew word of the text. And which is a really cool title. We looked at the route of the Exodus. And now we're at the point where they're about to go into the promised land. So they're not even really on this map anymore. They're up by the Dead Sea, which is the small body of water in the top right. They're sort of about a third of the way in from the right. And the Jordan River flows down into that. So they're, they're right up just above the top of this, of what you can see in this map. But this shows you a lot of the desert terrain they have traversed. And so in the books, we looked at Exodus and we saw chapters one through six being uh, about introducing Moses to us and sort of setting up the premise of Israelites as slaves. Seven through 11 are the first nine plagues. And then 12 through 15 is the 10th plague, the Passover and the actual Exodus. Chapter 16 through 18, the Lord provides in several different ways between the actual Exodus and the Lord showing up on Sinai. 19 through 40 is when the Lord is on Sinai. Moses is meeting with him up there. The Israelites are down at the foot of Sinai. This is where you get the Lord's glory, the Lord defining himself, the Ten Commandments, instructions for the tabernacle, um, the building of the tabernacle. You got the golden calf. A lot happens in those chapters. Um, the book of Leviticus Chapters 1 through 7, the offerings 8 through 10, the ordination of Aaron and his sons, and the judgment of Nadab and Abihu, that's Aaron's sons. And then 11 through 27 is just sort of a rattling off of, of uh, it's an exhaustive list of the purity laws. And Numbers 1 through 8, we got the first census and the organization, how they were going to travel together. 9 and 10, you've got the second Passover. So they've been out in the wilderness for a year at this point. And they start moving into the wilderness. Immediately, chapters 11 and 12, there's rebellion among the, the people wanting food besides the manna. And Miriam and Aaron challenge Moses' authority. Chapters 13 and 14, the spies are sent in to scout Canaan. Ten come back with a bad report. Joshua and Caleb come back with a good report. And so um, the Lord punishes, disciplines the entire Israeli nation, Israelite nation, by uh, forcing them to wander in the wilderness for the same number of days that these uh, spies were in Canaan. And so that would be 40 years for the 40 days. 
And so chapters 15 through 19, you've got uh, some rebellion with the man picking up wood on the Sabbath and Korah's rebellion with, with um, the, the others that were with him. But then you've also got holiness. You've got the tassel reminders of God's commandments and to obey them. You've got uh, what the provisions for the priests and how the priests are supposed to be treated. Chapter 20, you've got uh, water from the rock. Also at the end of chapter 20, we didn't look at it, but at the end of chapter 20 is where Aaron uh, dies uh, on uh, Mount Hor. Chapter 21, the fiery or bronze serpent. Chapters 22 through 24 is Balaam's donkey, which leads right into chapter 25, which is the Israelites, Israelite men sinning with the Moabite women. And Phinehas, the son of um, Eliezer, the, um, Aaron's uh, son, the new priest, Phinehas uh, has some uh, righteous judgment. And uh, there's also a plague that kills more thousands of them. And then chapter 26 is the second census, and that's where you have um, uh, the entire first generation has passed away, and only new people who are younger than 20 or newborn in the wilderness now are part of this second census, except for Moses is still alive. Um, he will not get to enter the promised land, but he's still alive at this point, and uh, Caleb and Joshua, of course, are still alive because they they are exempt from the 40-year uh, discipline. They've still had to wander for 40 years, but they get to go to the promised land. They're not going to die in the wilderness. Chapter 27, we looked at last night with, uh, or I uh, should say Tuesday night, rather. That's uh, Zelo Fahad's daughters. And then Joshua is, uh, the, past, the torch is passed to Joshua, from Moses to Joshua. That's chapter 27. So we're going to kind of skip over 28 through 30. These are some more laws about different kinds of offerings and vows and the Sabbath and Passover and festivals and things like this. Chapter 31, there is a war with uh, Midian. And then in chapter 32, you get into the Transjordan settlements. And that's what we're going to look at uh, tonight is chapter 32. Um, I, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. I'm just going to kind of tell you what happens and let you go read it because I have some other things that I'd like to kind of talk about tonight. So uh, I'm just going to show you the text here. And basically what happens is you have the Reubenites and the Gadites, and it ends up also the half-tribe of Manasseh. So Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Basically what happens is as they're coming into the, about to cross the Jordan River, they're looking at the land on the east side of the Jordan. And thinking, hey, this land looks pretty good, which if you think about it, the land on the east side of the Jordan is going to look pretty much like the land on the west side of the Jordan. So um, we talked about this back in the Genesis series when Abraham and Lot are choosing which way they're going to go. And so if you let me just recap that real quick. So Abraham and Lot, they're standing basically on this mountain ridge. I've stood, if not on the same ridge, on a similar ridge where you can stand and you can look off to this side and over here to the south or I'm sorry to the um uh to the west it is just desert you know it's just barren there's like little shrubs growing i mean there's stuff for livestock to eat but not really you know there's shrubs and then if you look off to the east down into the jordan valley there's the jordan river and all around the jordan river it is green and there's grass and shrubs and trees because there's water there, right? And so as Lot and Abraham 
are standing there, Lot says, oh, I think I'll go this way. And so Lot goes down, not just to the lush green area where all of his livestock will be fed, but of course we realize he winds up in the cities, the cities down there, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other cities that are there, all the cities around there were destroyed along with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so um, Lot makes a very dishonorable choice to his uncle, to his older um, relative. He, he should have shown honor to his relative and let his relative, his older relative, have the um, have the nicer piece of land or wor just worked out something better. It was pretty dishonorable thing to do. But I, I kind of go back through that to, to remind you that the Jordan Valley, because there's water, there's grass green on both sides, right? So as we're coming into where they're going to cross over the Jordan from the what is now the nation of Jordan, they're, com they're coming from the Jordan side into the Israel side, right? So they're currently on the Jordan side, which is Moab. That's what it's called at this time in scripture. So they're in Moab. They're going to cross the Jordan into what would become Israel. And the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh are looking all around and they go, hey, this is pretty good for our livestock because it's just as green as the other side of the Jordan, right? And so they say, hey, if we found favor in your sight, let this land be given to us as a possession. Don't make us cross the Jordan. And so there's a lot of discussion about it. And essentially what uh, gets worked out is um, they say, okay, fine. You want that land? You can have it. Like we're trying to give you this the really great land. You want that land? You want to take that? No problem. But you still have to cross the Jordan. You don't get to stay over there. All of your fighting men have to go and they have to go through all the conquests until the entire uh, promised land is taken for the rest of your brothers. Once that's done, then if you then you can return home. But you've, you've got to go through and you've got to follow through with, with what's being done. And they agree to do that. So that ends up what uh, is happening. They, they establish some camps and that sort of thing. They're, everyone goes across the Jordan. They continue to fight and then they come back. And so, again, I, we could take the time to, to actually you know read through um, all the uh, panels of scripture here about that. But I've just given you the Cliff Notes version of the story. And so here is the... Um, the point that I want to take from this before we move on to some other things, and that's this. Finish well. So you have these two and a half tribes, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh was one of Joseph's sons. You have these two and a half tribes that, that make it through Egypt, make it through the Exodus, cross the Red Sea, make it through the wilderness, survive all the plagues and everything of the wilderness, survive all the judgments and everything of the wilderness, get right up to the Jordan River and just say, ah, we're not going to go any farther. We just want to stay here. It's just so hard to understand. You know, I mean, I guess it would be easier to understand if you're there and you've got livestock and you're, you've got green grass. I mean, I guess, and, and, and certainly we, we do it. But when we look at it third party, it's kind of, it's like, why would you do that? I remember when I would teach band camp, I would, I would teach, um, drumline for uh, just different high school band camps in the summer. And there would be kids that would quit. You know, band camp would usually be like two weeks. They quit on Thursday of the second week. I'm like, dude, you got one more day and you're done. After this, it's like two hours a week in Friday night football games. Like this was the hard part and it's almost over. Why would you quit now? 
because not only is that going to create a big problem for us because we got to rewrite music, we got to rewrite the drill, whatever. It's like you you made it, like you made it through boot camp. What? <laughs> why would you quit now? And so that really is just the biggest thing here is just finish well. All right, you're so close to the end. Just finish well. Now, um, what does this mean spiritually? What does it mean spiritually to finish well? Uh, first, I think maybe it will help if we look at what happens if you don't finish well. And maybe that will start to give us a sense of spiritually what it might mean to finish well. So what happens when you don't finish well? Well, let's take some lessons from this story. So first of all, when you don't finish well, you create extra work for yourself. Okay, because you're going to so what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to set up a camp and then they're going to have to go and do a bunch of warring with their brothers. And then they're going to have to come back and 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 build their cities and everything back on the other side of the river. And when they come back to the river, it's not going to part for them. Right? They're going to have to wade through the river or swim through the river. Jordan River, by the way, it's not very big. Uh, if you've ever seen Mouse Creek flooded, that's probably about how big the Jordan River is, maybe a little bigger. It's not very big. Um, it's it's a river if you live in a desert. If you live in Tennessee, maybe you wouldn't really think of it as a river. It's not like the Tennessee River. Uh, it's not like the Cumberland River. It's nothing like that. It's uh, We would call it probably a stream down here, but it's um, it's a river. I, I, I've been there a couple times. And the first time we went, it was really incredible. There was a family with us. Their two sons decided to get baptized there. And so they were baptized in the Jordan River. And that was really a beautiful moment for a couple of reasons. For one reason, the older son, Paul, he um, had a, um, a heart condition and that they found out after this trip, uh, he was getting his physical for football and they found out about this heart condition and he had some surgery on it and there were some complications and he ended up passing away as a teenager. It was very devastating, but it was, um, we, we were all thankful to know that his soul was secure because he'd made this decision just months before to be baptized and in the Jordan river of all places. And, um, so it was a special moment to be able to capture that baptism on camera. I was there filming. Um, but what happened right after that was very cool. There were baptisms also going on the other side of the Jordan. Now we were on the Israel side and the other people were on the nation of Jordan side. And, you know, um, relationship between those two nations isn't, isn't too hot. It's not so great. Right. So you've got Israeli soldiers on this side, you've got, uh, Jordanians, uh, soldiers on the other side, everybody's got machine guns in case somebody tries to swim across the river, which again, it's like, it'd be like, I, I think our, our neighbor's house here where my parents are is farther away than the, uh, the little bleachers or whatever they had over on the other side of the Jordan. I mean, it's, it's, it's so close. It's, it's less than a basketball court's width from, from one side of the river to the other. And um, so while there's this tension there <laughs> with the machine guns and everything, there's baptisms going on. There's baptisms going on on the other side. And over on the other side, they baptize somebody and uh, everybody cheers and they sing. We baptized uh, Paul and his brother. And uh, after they came up out of the water, we sang Blessed Assurance, because that's a song that means something to North Boulevard. That was the very first song at North Boulevard. And so every time we open a campus, we always work in Blessed Assurance, usually to the, the very first uh, worship service that we have there. It's just sort of a tradition. And so when they came up out of the water, we sang blessed assurance. And it was so beautiful because the people on the other side started singing with us, except they were singing in their language. 
Um, and we don't know where they were from, um, Africa or uh, somewhere in the Middle East. They were singing some language that we didn't know, but they knew the hymn and they knew the tune and they were singing with us. It was almost like um, a little uh, preview of what heaven will be like. Um, so uh, that's um, my story about the Jordan River. So got sidetracked by that a little bit, but it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful story. Uh, but the point is, when they come back, they're going to have to swim across this river. It's not that big a deal, but like they're just creating extra work for themselves on a whole bunch of levels. So when you don't finish well, when you don't see things all the way through, then you just end up creating extra work for yourself than just sort of uh, doing it right the first time. Mom would say that to me all the time in high school and beyond. If you don't have time to do it right, when will you have time to do it over? Right. And so finishing well is about uh, this one thing is you create extra work for yourself when you don't finish well. The second thing that I've got here is you create division between you and your brothers and sisters. What does that mean? Well, let's look at what happens later. So this is Joshua chapter 22. And so after, uh, so this is after all the conquests and everything, Joshua says, okay, uh, Reubenites, Gadites, half-tribe of Manasseh, you've done everything Moses commanded you and you've obeyed me and everything that I've commanded you. You haven't deserted us, not even once. And um, you've carried out the requirement of the Lord your God. So Joshua sends them on their way and they go back. So once they go back, they build an altar on the other side. And this was a big deal because, um, you know, there was the altar in the tabernacle. That was where you worshiped God. And that was the only place. You didn't just worship God wherever it was done at the tabernacle. Well, they're back over on the other side of the Jordan. They, they can't get to the tabernacle. So they build their own altar. Well, the people in the West hear about that and they cross over to the east side of the Jordan to see what all what, what, what the deal is. And so they go and they get this explanation of the altar and all they say is, you know, we're not doing any sacrifices or anything on it. We just built it for a couple of reasons. One, we don't have access to the real altar. And so this just reminds us that there is one on the other side, but it's also a reminder to your descendants in case they ever come to us, to, the, to our descendants over here and say, hey, you don't have any share in what we're doing, this altar would show, no, no, we, we are like you. We built this because we're the same, you and us. And uh, once the explanation was heard, uh, everything was, was copacetic and everybody went home and it was, um, it was all good. And so they found out they weren't worshiping some other God. They weren't trying to worship God their own way. They weren't breaking off and it wasn't a church split. You know, they weren't doing some kind of splinter cell or anything like that. And so by the end of it all, uh, it says, Phineas, uh, son of Eliezer, the priests and leaders returned and brought back the report to them. The Israelites were, were, pleased, were, were pleased with the report, and so they praised God. So, um, so it ended up being nothing, but there was this division there for a while until it all got sorted out. So when you don't finish well, you end up creating some division between you and your brothers and sisters. Another thing is you leave yourself open to attack when you don't finish well. When you're unfinished, when you have unfinished business, you leave yourself open to attack. So once again, we look at this, the consequences of this story. Here's in 1 Chronicles 5. So this is way down the line, right? Half the tribe of Manasseh. Uh, they uh, get into it. Uh, Assyria comes in. First of all, there, well, there's two things actually listed in this, these, this uh, paragraph here. So the first thing is half the tribe of Manasseh, because they're way out on the edge, they are closest, they are abutted to all of these pagan people. So they start prostituting, them, prostituting themselves with these pagan people. If they were over on the west side, they'd be 
hemmed in by the Mediterranean and hemmed in by the Jordan River, and maybe would not be so tempted to look over across their fence and see what was going on over there and want to get involved with that. So that's the the first problem. That's the first way they're vulnerable to attack. The second is literal attack, right? Um, so, uh, and, and this is actually ends up being uh, basically judgment from God, right? So they prostituted themselves um, about halfway down. They prostituted themselves with the gods of the nations God had destroyed before them. So uh, God had destroyed all these nations and they decided, oh, we're going to, we're going to do what they did, even though they're gone now. So the God of Israel put it into the mind of Pool, that is Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, to take the Reubenites, Gadites, and half-tribe of Manasseh into exile. He took them to Hala, Habor, Hara, and Gozan's river, where they are until today. So as judgment for their idolatry, Assyria comes in, kidnaps them, and assimilates them into Assyria, and whatever happened to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh? Where are they? Where are they today? What happened to them? So the, the time this scripture was written, they're still there to this day. So um, you leave yourself vulnerable to attack when you don't finish well. And the last thing is just this. You don't know what God has for you on the other side. How might things have turned out differently for Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh if they had taken their share of land on the West? What blessing did they miss out on because they wanted to do their own thing, because they took matters into their own hands? It's the same thing when they made the golden calf. It's the same thing when... Moses struck the rock and took credit for it rather than letting the Lord show his holiness. And now here they've taken matters into their own hands. And even though it was okayed and it was, you know, made okay, it left them vulnerable to all these things and ended up um, possibly being, being a, you know, clearly being a bad thing down the road. So when you don't finish well, you create extra work for yourself. You create division between you and your brothers and sisters. You leave yourself open to attack. And you don't know what God has for you on the other side. So now, hopefully, you can start to get a picture. Okay, spiritually, here's what it looks like when I don't finish well. What does it look like when I do finish well? How can I finish well? So when we're talking about finishing, we're talking about making it all the way to the finish line. You know, like Paul says, I, I fought the good fight. I ran the good race. I ran to win, right? So how do we, how do, we do that? How do we get all the way to the end? You know, and I, you know, I could joke here and say some of us are closer to the end than others, right? Some of us are closer to that finish line, but we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. None of us do. None of us know when, when the end is. So we should always be in the process of finishing well, right? We should always um, uh, work for God as if we're going to live forever. And we should always live for God as if we're going to die tonight, right? So... Um, the question is, what does it look like, or rather, how can we finish well? How to finish well? So here's three things that I would recommend that will help you finish well. One, focus on the irrefutable promises of Scripture. We've looked at uh, a lot of Scripture. when We've been through almost the whole Torah at this point. And there's a lot of commands, and the commands are important to know. They tell us about the character of God, and they tell us about um, who we are is maybe some of the changes that we need to make, right? But uh, I really want to think 
not just about the commands, but the promises, right? The promises that God makes also show his character. Now, there's some promises that maybe he makes only to the nation of Israel. But uh, Paul says in the book of Romans, the argument that he makes is those of us who are in Christ, even though we're Gentiles, and probably pretty much everyone listening right now is a Gentile, if we're in Christ, we are grafted in to the tree of Israel. And for those who may be of the nation of Israel that don't regard Christ as the Messiah, don't regard Christ as the Son of God, don't produce fruit that point to Christ who points to God. Those branches are going to be cut out. And as those branches are cut out, it leaves the space for those of us who are Gentiles to be grafted in. So that's what's really beautiful is God's going to keep all of his promises to the Israelite nation. But because we're in Christ, we now get to share in those promises. When Paul talks about the good news, when Paul talks about the the mystery, so often one of the big things that he's referring to is that the promises that were made to Israel have been opened up to the ethnos, to the people, to the Gentiles, to everyone in the world. That's good news because now we get the same promise, the promises that um, God alluded to in Genesis 12 to Abraham. We get to share in those because we are in Christ. So that's the first thing is I'd focus on the irrefutable promises of scripture. God will never take those promises back. And we've seen a lot about God's character and we've seen uh, a lot about the character of human nature. I've discussed Discovery Bible Study with you before. The three big questions to really remember with Discovery Bible Study, there's more to it if you want to look at it. And I've, I've shown you that link before. I'll put it up here again in a second. But the three big questions to really ask are, okay, well, I just read this passage. What does it say about God? What does it say about human nature, about people? And how am I going to put it into practice? How am I going to obey this passage? What's it say about God? What's it say about people? And what am I going to do about it? Those are the three questions that you should ask about a passage. If you do that, that's a great way to focus on the irrefutable promises of Scripture, is to do things like Discovery Bible Study. So I'll once again put northboulevard.com slash DBS in the comments. And I will... uh, pin that once again. So I've got two pinned comments down there. They may be taking up the entire screen or maybe it unpinned that other one. That's okay. So uh, if you want to go there, you can learn more about Discovery Bible Study and how to do that. Uh, all my small groups, all my discipleship groups, that's all we do. I don't I don't like pick a book like, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's great books out there. Francis Chan, David Platt, C.S. Lewis, Max Licato, whatever. Um, there's great books that you could go through. And I'm not saying don't ever do that. I'm just saying I don't do that. At the end of the day, I can argue with C.S. Lewis. It's going to be kind of arrogant of me to do, but I can do it because he's just a guy. He's just a human. We're not going to agree on everything theologically. I'm not going to agree with Francis Chan on everything theologically. I'm not going to agree with Max Licato. I don't agree with uh, David Young or Ryan Airy on everything theologically. I don't agree with some things that I've probably said in this lesson as I go back and listen to, you know, it's just like you're not going to agree with everybody. Okay. So when you have a book that's written by a man, at the end of the day, I can argue with that if I want. And when I do that, it gives me just a little bit of a foothold to not have to obey it. But if I'm studying scripture, I know I can't argue with that. So uh, all I'm left to do is to, as Ted Gobble would say, to look in it as a mirror and decide, do I like what I see when I look in this? And when I walk away, what am I going to do with what I just saw? So um, the Discovery Bible Study is a great way to focus on the irrefutable promises of scripture. The second one I have here might be a little surprising to you, but that's remember the global church. 
okay, how's that going to help us finish well? Well, there's something about the global church that I, I think maybe actually will be a little easier to explain because of the present situation that we're in. With everyone safer at home, really in nearly every nation in the world, it's a great unifying thing that is happen, happening across the world. Also, it's stripping things like, for a lot of us, work, uh, for most of us, busyness, uh, getting out and doing things and flitting around from one place to another. Um, a lot of us are even kind of sick of going through Netflix or whatever. You know, we've just been turning the TV off and reading a book or something. We're just doing other things. Anyway, things things like this, like a like a pandemic or it just any kind of turmoil in your life suddenly turns down the volume on all of the nonsense, right? So suddenly this pandemic comes along and all of the sort of non-essential stuff, the volume gets turned way down on it. And what's left is the really important stuff. What's left is the friendships, the relationships, basic necessities, food, meat, toilet paper, right? And so when a time like this happens, that's a way where the volume gets turned way down and we can remember what's important and we can really prioritize and that helps us to finish well. And so the reason why I say, remember the global church is when you are remembering them and reading their stories and getting emails from organizations like Open Doors USA or persecution.org or um, Gospel for Asia or uh, Eastern European Mission, any of these places like that. When you are reading their stories and you're praying for these other nations and you're learning about them, you realize really how good you have it here. And suddenly all the volume gets turned down on all the stuff that you think is important when you're looking at what somebody else has, right? When you're praying for the people of North Korea, where it is, I think it's punishable by death to own a Bible. Suddenly there's a lot of nonsense over here. that just, it's just not worth getting, you know, getting your hackles up about, you know, it's, it's uh, just turns down the volume on everything and helps you to prioritize. So remembering the global church really can help you to finish well. And the last thing that I have down here is just to make disciples. That's how you finish well. You know, in John, after the last supper, they sing a hymn and they go out and they walk among the vineyards on the way to the Mount of Olives. And this is where Jesus is telling the 11, Judas has already left at this point, right? And so Jesus is telling the 11, uh, I'm the vine, you are the branches, right? And what he says is a branch that does not produce fruit is going to be cut off and thrown into the fire. That's some strong language. And he's not saying that to people of the world, meaning if you don't have a life that exhibits some goodness, then, you know, there's going to be some consequences for you. He's saying this, to his top 11 guys, his faithful 11 guys, the 11 disciples who would become the apostles, right? The, the harbingers of the gospel in just a few short weeks. And he's saying to them, if you don't produce fruit, your branch is going to get cut off and thrown into the fire. So what does that mean to produce fruit? Well, we see like the fruit of the spirit. And so um, a lot of us think to produce fruit means, oh, well, just produce fruit in your life. You're being good. You're being kind. You're loving your neighbor as yourself, those kinds of things. I would submit that that is only part of it, that that's not wrong, but it's not a complete answer. Think about an actual fruit. Think about an apple. Okay. Why do we get an apple? Well, because we like to eat it. It's sweet, right? A nice, crisp. Uh, we like the, the honey crisp, or I like a, or an organic, or organic Fuji, or sometimes we'll get the, the gala apples. 
And so um, we like that nice, sweet taste. What's in the middle of the apple that we usually just throw away? What's that part? What's the core? What's in the core? The seeds. Well, if you're an apple tree, what's the most important part of the apple? It's the seeds, right? The whole point of having the apple is so that some human or some animal, some horse, some uh, cow will come along and will eat the apple. And by the way, when an animal eats it, it eats everything, the core, seeds, everything, right? And so the horse comes along, eats the apple, and the horse wanders out into the field, and then the horse does what the horse does. And there are those seeds that have passed through, and they're nice, nicely packaged in a little fertilizer package where, guess what? A new apple tree can grow. That's the whole point of a seed is for more trees. And what happens when more trees grow? Those trees bear fruit. Why? So Because there's a seed in them, and those seeds can be planted somewhere else and grow more trees. Right? So... The whole point of a fruit is the seed. It's not the really attractive stuff. That's why we like it, because we like it for food. But the whole point of a fruit, the reason why a fruit exists from the plant, is for the seed. So when we look through scripture and we see things in the New Testament about producing fruit, yes, it's talking about the fruit of our life and the fruits of the Spirit and the, 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 the attractive sweetness that we bring to loving our neighbor and to loving the Lord. But why are we doing that? Because if we truly love our neighbor, they must come to know Christ. They must know who God is so that they can follow him, so they can trust him, right? Trust and follow Jesus. And so if we're not also carrying a seed, if we're also not planting the seed, if we're not sowing the seed, like Mark chapter four, then what fruit do we have? You know, you know how many navel orange trees there are? None, right? They just have to keep grafting these seedless branches, these mutant branches onto actual trees because how do you grow a tree from something that doesn't have a seed? You can't do it, right? Uh, Bradford pears, beautiful blooms, right? But they don't produce a fruit. So there's no seed, right? They're, they're, they're a fruitless, seedless tree. They were actually engineered to be fruitless it's because uh, the fruits were all messy and nasty and that kind of thing. And um, trees are you know, notoriously brittle. I mean, they're, they're beautiful when they're in bloom, but um, there's a reason that they don't function well as a tree. You know, they just, they're, they're engineered to not produce fruit. We as humans, we as Christians, we as faithful people, as Bible readers, we are supposed to produce fruit. And so that's what making disciples is all about. It's not just the attractive, the sweet part of the fruit, but it's about the seed. So this doesn't mean that you have to hold a class. It doesn't mean you have to do a nightly hour long, you know, webinar. It doesn't mean anything like that. What it means is spend time with people, love your neighbor as yourself, and they should know why you're doing it. They should know that you love Christ. They should know that you trust and follow him. And you, based on their spiritual development, should be helping them along to uh, trust and follow Jesus. That's something that we'll look at more tomorrow night. I just give you a short preview of it right before we wrap up. But we looked at how a disciple grows last night, that someone who's dead doesn't have Christ. When they're born, born again, that's because they committed to repentance, to trust and follow Jesus, and they've been baptized as a sign of that repentance. And so that, that baptism is like the wedding ceremony that, that says, I've gone from a life of not trusting Jesus into a new life of trusting Jesus. Now they're a spiritual infant and they're totally dependent and they need help. A child begins making some connections, but they're still pretty dependent. They're learning to become independent. They're growing in the things that they can do on their own. By the time they're a spiritual young adult, they're becoming active in ministry and they are figuring out where their place is in the world of serving other people and they start to become others focused and God focused rather than self-focused. 
And eventually, at some point, Christians mature and they become a parent and they look for someone else who is in an infant, a child or a young adult stage or a dead stage. And they do the things that need to be done for those people to grow and become parents themselves, because you have not really become a mature disciple until you have made other disciple makers. So Paul in 2 Timothy 2, 2 tells Timothy to uh, take the things that you've learned from me, as he says to Timothy, uh, take the things that I've taught you, teach them to reliable people who be able to teach others also four generations. So really you've not reached spiritual maturity. You haven't even begun to reach spiritual maturity until you have four generations of followers behind you, meaning that you've taught someone how to make disciples. That person's taught someone how to make disciples. And that person has made disciples who you presume will one day make disciples also. If that chain doesn't keep going, what's going to happen to the church? It'll die out. And so uh, this is why it's so critical that we truly make disciples and that we spend our life doing that. That needs to be the number one thing that we do in our life. It doesn't mean that we don't do anything else in life, but it does mean that everything else we do must somehow come back to making disciples. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.